the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by AndrewandTodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try AndrewandTodd.com or call 888 Now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The interview with Hugh Hewitt today is with Professor Jesse McCarthy. Professor McCarthy is a member of the faculty at Harvard in the English Department and in the Department of African and African American Studies. He's the author of a brand new novel, uh, The Fugitives, which I have not read, and a collection of essays named for the song you just heard by Gil Scott Heron, Who Will Pay Reparations on My Soul. Professor McCarthy, welcome to The Hugh Hewitt Show. Uh, Good morning, Hugh. It's good to be with you. Uh, thank you for joining me. I, I want to give you a, a quick bit of background. I have not read The Fugitives yet. I am going to read it now. I have read three quarters of Who Will Pay Reparations <laughs> on My Soul because I heard about it for the first time. I heard about you for the first time two mm-hmm. weeks ago when my Presbyterian pastor, I'm an evangelical Roman Catholic Presbyterian, which means I go to Mass on Saturday and to Presbyterian Church on Sunday. Uh, he, preached, he preached a sermon that cited Afro-pessimism. And I said, huh, what? Who is Jesse McCarthy? So please apologize. Uh, take, accept my apology for not knowing. But you're quite the force of writing, uh, my friend. And I have, I have been moving through, and we are, we are not rushed, uh, through who will pay reparations on my soul. Can I begin by asking, are you surprised that I don't know much of this? I'm a 65-year-old white man who's been in broadcast for 30 years. I'm a Harvard graduate and a University of Michigan Law School graduate. I've covered race and politics for four decades, and I just don't know a lot of this. Well, you know, look, I think there's, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I mean, first of all, um, you know, thank you for having me on. Um, I appreciate it, and I appreciate the, your interest in the book, and I'm glad to to know and to hear that the bur- that the book is circulating, and you know even being um, you know discussed in in church, which is fa- you know fantastic from my point of view. Um, one thing that uh, you know I'll say is that uh, in terms of folks encountering stuff that they may feel like, hey, I never heard about this before, or I never learned about this in school. That's a reaction that I get across the board. Um, I also get that reaction when I teach here at Harvard from students who 
uh, not all of them, but many of them, um, will have come to the university after having gone to excellent schools. Uh, not always, but uh, not infrequently private schools with considerable means and advanced courses and so on and so forth, um, but arise in my classroom, um, for example, knowing uh, not a great deal about the history of Reconstruction in the United States of America, which is a pretty important piece of our history that sometimes you would expect somebody who's taken, you know, AP, advanced placement in American history, would know a considerable amount about. Um, there's a lot of cultural history that sometimes we, we may think we know, but sometimes gets, you know, uh, you know, fall slips through the cracks. Uh, I teach a lot of African-American literary history as my specialty, and um, there's a great deal uh, of work from not only the 19th century, but the the 20th century as well that, uh, you know, you might think would would have sort of entered into into more common knowledge and um, sort of seeped into uh, general awareness, uh, but it's just not the case. Um, and one of the reasons that I love the essay as a form is it allows me to kind of um, range very freely and kind of get things in, you know, while I'm, while I'm, while I'm on my way uh, pursuing a certain uh, train of thought. And, um, and so I always think of my essays as functioning both as um, in the traditional sort of sense that Montaigne gives to it of an attempt an attempt to try and figure something out for oneself um, in, in thought, in words, in writing. Um, but I also uh, sort of sneak in, if you will, a kind of pedagogical imperative um, where I'm trying to um, share essentially as much, um, you know, knowledge as, uh, as I have because I feel extremely privileged and fortunate to have had the opportunity to learn so much. I've had, you know, I went to graduate school. I had years which I, you know, in which I had time to really, you know, read in depth and read whatever I wanted and go through archives and do research. And, um, you know, I, the essay for me is, is also, among other things, an opportunity to kind of put some of that knowledge back into circulation. It works. Now, you, you mentioned <laughs> well, Montana. Uh, you mentioned Montana. I began this week the interview with Hugh Hewitt, which is the long-form interview on this radio show and in my podcast, with Professor Harvey Mansfield, who was deeply impactful on my life as a student, and my senior thesis was on Montaigne. I say Montaigne, you say Montaigne. That goes back 45 years of my life. And on his essays, which are still on my bookshelf. And then midweek, I had Andrew Sullivan on, who got his Ph.D. from Harvey. And I am not uncomfortable talking about anything with Harvey Mansfield or anything with Andrew Sullivan because my life is in politics and I read deeply in politics, both the theory and the practice of it. But when I come upon your essay on Toni Morrison, I will admit to you, I have never read a Toni Morrison novel. And one of my questions after reading your essay is, am I ignorant? Is she that important to the form of the novel? I've read War and Peace. I've read Moby Dick. I want to be smart about the form of the novel. I've never read a Toni Morrison novel. Am I, am I just ignorant? It's okay to say yes. Well, it, look, it's, it depends on how you want to think about the term ignorant. I mean, the short answer is yes. Okay. But that's not really the useful answer. It's, it's not wrong, but it's not the most useful answer. I think a better answer is, or a better set of questions involves um, how it comes to pass that somebody who 
has had the opportunity, for example, to study with Harvey Mansfield, um, and who, uh, what state did you grow up in? Ohio. I'm a Roman Catholic Ohioan who's lived in California for 35 years. I've read Baldwin, you, by do, the way. Do you know? I've do, read, know where, do you know where? Do you know where Toni Morrison is from? She's from Ohio. I know now because of your essay. <laughs> okay. I, I know okay. she was so, at her at Random House. I now know. I'm going to right, read Toni right. Morrison because so, I know she got in a fight with Updike, and I've read Updike, and then I went right, and read right. what Updike wrote about her, and then I read what people wrote about Updike for writing that about her because of your essay. So your essay works. No, I, and I'm glad to hear that. I'm very glad to hear that's one of the reasons why I write, you know, what I write. But I guess one of the things I would say is, right, you, it's, it's worth thinking about, though, like how it happens that somebody with your kind of life trajectory, which is a relatively, you know, impressive one, and also one that I think lots of people can imagine, you know, p- relating to parts of, okay, um, how it comes to pass that, uh, 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 probably the greatest American novelist, specifically novelist, working in the form of a novel that our country has produced, uh, let's say in the last half century, who's also from your own home state, who also happens to have won the Nobel Prize for Literature, if, you know, if that kind of thing matters in terms of recognition who also happens to write about, right, uh, one of the central uh, sort of, one of the, one of the central themes of the nation of which you are a part. And I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm going out on a limb here, but I'm going to assume that, you know, you're decently patriotic, right? You care about the United States of America to some extent. You identify with it. It, it means something to you to be an American, right? Yes, Right. Well, I mean, race and the life of African-Americans and black people is at the center of that history, like at the deepest core, at every single phase of this nation. And this is one of the foremost, if not the foremost, novelist on this particular question that this nation has ever produced and happens to right, be from your own home state. And, and, you know, investigate <laughs> the lie. I will tell you how that happens. This is, okay, this so is an interview. It's, it's, how that happens. <laughs> it, it's, it's an interview. It's not a dialectic. I want to get to your other essay. Okay. That happens okay. because when I go to Harvard, the core yeah. curriculum does not require me to read Toni Morrison. And I do take one English class, which is the great novels of the 20s and 30s. I had never read John Dos Passos. I had never read Edith Wharton. Sure. There, there isn't an African-American writer in that canon. So my one brief hit, you know, my, my three months in the English department where yeah. I learned I should have been an English major because you can actually go through school on your back and, mm-hmm. and, and love it. Uh, it. It just wasn't yeah. in the canon. And then when you get going on life, you specialize. And when you go to law school, there is yeah. no fiction in law school. So what happens is that your, your spectrum narrows. And so if you don't know, the Nobel Prizes sure. mean nothing to me, Professor, because they're, they're no, so incoherent. And I agree. That's fair. And that's why I, that's why I hesitated to even. But I don't mind being ignorant. It. I like to know where I'm ignorant because I can fix that. And you're doing that. But now I want to talk to you about where I'm not ignorant. Okay. I. I want to go to a little throwaway line that you toss in in one of your essays. I'll find it. Uh, Because 
1989, I'm on a subway from Midtown with Dr. John Agresto, former chairman of the National Endowment for Humanity, Susan Metz, one of the great fundraisers in the country. I'm a 35-year-old rising lawyer at this point. And John wants me to go to Red Hook with him and then to Coney Island because he grew up there, Italian-American Catholic. And we go to Red Hook. And, he's, and, a, and a New York transit cop comes up to us on the subway on a Sunday morning and says, what are you three doing here? Because we, we are just about as white as white can be. And we're dressed in suits and ties, et cetera. And he says, I'm going to ride with you, and you're going back to, to, New, to Manhattan because it's not safe for you here. A line in your essay says, after college, you went to teach in Red Hook. How did mm-hmm. that happen? Well, I went and read the Gazette story on you, and I realized that you're part of the Amherst teacher's thing, and you went there for a year. Mm-hmm. What was Red Hook? That must have been about 20 years after my subway ride. It must have been around mm-hmm. 2009. What was yeah. Red Hook like? Uh, well, Red Hook had changed a lot. It was going through a, a period of um, what we now call gentrification. Uh, they opened an Ikea, or they were in the, when I was there, they were, the, the Ikea was not actually open yet, but they were in the process of sort of building what would be an Ikea sort of outlet um, down at the terminals on the, on the waterfront there, um, which has helped revitalize the area to a certain extent. Um, But what I can tell you is that, um, I mean, you may know that uh, a good chunk of that uh, neighborhood uh, for folks who are listening, who don't know, we're talking about a neighborhood that's a, it's essentially a waterfront um, neighborhood in Brooklyn that is, you know, was was once um, a fairly uh, vibrant and robust area. It had naturally a lot of connections to, uh, you know, uh, the, the port and docking sort of industries. It was a it's where longshoremen lived and this kind of thing. Um, when uh, containerization and deindustrialization, a number of other things happened, a lot of that uh, work and uh, labor opportunity uh, moved to New Jersey, actually. Um, and uh, by the late 80s and 1990s, in conjunction with what we also refer to as the crack epidemic, uh, that area became notorious as a, a particularly violent and rather despairing uh, kind of corner of, of Brooklyn that was sort of abandoned and neglected, not well-served. It's still not well-served by public transportation. That's also been an issue down there. That's when I passed uh, through it at its nadir. I passed through it at its nadir. Yeah, yeah. And and I I was teaching there at a time when they were trying to get it, you know, back together. The neighborhood is, uh, a good chunk of it is occupied by uh, the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Houses, one of the oldest housing projects in New York City, um, and is um, almost entirely um, occupied by residents who either um, who identify either as black or or Puerto Rican, uh, traditionally at least, and uh, and certainly that was still the, demographically the case overwhelmingly when I was there. Um, and you know, so uh, I was I was teaching in a school, South Brooklyn Community High School, which um, was struggling with. Um, but and to a certain extent, uh, you know, doing a decent job, I think, uh, though in under very difficult circumstances, um, with students who were essentially the generation that was kind of coming up in the wake of that, 
Um, and there were still a lot of problems, still a lot of problems with gang violence, still a lot of problems with drug use, many of the problems with, uh, uh, that afflict, you know, uh, many of communities that find themselves in this, in this kind of distress and have done so for very similar historical reasons and, and have some very similar trajectories. Um, but my experience there was fundamentally as a, as a high school teacher, I was teaching 11th and 12th grade um, English. Okay. And uh, it was a magnificent experience because the students were extraordinary. They were um, extraordinarily bright, extraordinarily vibrant. Um, and it was really uh, there that I actually, um, uh, it was that experience that made me know, uh, sort of eventually apply to graduate school because I knew that at a minimum I was going to enjoy teaching. Because I, I really love to teach. And so I figured, you know, if I, if I did end up getting a job in the academy, uh, I knew I was going to like that part of the job. And so my, my interest and my, uh, my feeling that I, that I could do it, that I could be a teacher, and that I actually enjoyed doing it came out of that experience. You know, I would, I would take your course for a lot of reasons. One, I can't imagine teaching James Baldwin along with Henry James, but I love the idea of it. But two, it uh, your trajectory is wild. I do not know where you're from or where you went to high school. I know that you went after Amherst to teach in Brooklyn. I know from the Gazette article... I want to read this to my to my audience. After I left, you wrote or you said in an interview, mm-hmm. I had some wandering years. I did odd jobs. I traveled. I lived in San Francisco doing catering. I came back to New York and worked at Book Culture, a bookstore near Columbia. I enjoyed it. And I was a good bookseller and eventually became a manager in my second mm-hmm. year there. And I thought of other options. I was an English major in college, but I'd been out of school four or five years. So I went to the New York Public Library and did a lot of reading to find out what kind of conversations were going on in the field. And then you go on to become a professor at Harvard and you write a book. I got to read The Fugitives, which from the reviews sounds to me like you put a lot of your experience into. But where did you grow up and where did you go to high school? Yeah, well, this is going to be another curveball for you, Hugh. But um, but really quickly, I should just say the the title of the book, I know it's uh, annoying, but the, the title of the novel is The Fugitivities. Like oh, my gosh, I'm sorry. No, that's not annoying. No, that's no, it's okay. It's okay. I, I knew this was going to happen when I gave it that title. <laughs> so, and you know, my my uh, you know uh, editor and lots of lots of folks, you know, my my own parents, you know, asked me to you know please give it a different title. So, I, <laughs> I have to live with the title that I gave it. But um, well, now I'll uh, never forget it. It's actually yeah. brilliant because now I'll never forget it. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, and it, and you know, and it's it it, it does it fares well in the search search engines. Uh, because it's a fairly unique word, but th- what I'll say is, is that um, uh, yeah, this is a, it's a, it's a uh, you know my my life story is completely um, atypical. So this is another curveball for you. Uh, my parents were actually um, both of my parents were journalists and uh, wow. moved around internationally a lot when I was very young. Um, but it, but fundamentally, the important thing that happened was that uh, they we moved to Paris, France. Uh, when I was about eight years old. And so I grew up in France. I attended bilingual schools, but I went through a good chunk of the French sort of standard system, if you will. Um, And so, interestingly enough, uh, part of my sort of formative education, um, especially around literature, actually came through, uh, through reading literature from the point of view of the way the French teach it. So, you know, reading through the kind of the classic suite of French writers and poets from the 
So when you write about Kanan, you're actually writing about someone with whom you have a connection in a very different way than most people who write about revolutionary stuff. I, well, that's fascinating. I did not well, know I'll that. I'll say that I, can, that I can read them in French. Certainly- yeah, and you can read Montaigne in French, so I should listen to how you pronounce it. You know, there, there will be, Professor, no awkward moments, as you reference, between Coates and Ezra. And I've known Ezra his whole life. He grew up with my daughter. They went to the same high school. So I can see Ezra mm-hmm. being awkwardly silent when he gets hit with a curve. You can't. I'm not ashamed of being ignorant. When you're 65, you just you just realize it and you try and fix it. I want to get to yeah. some of your essays because I've got to get to Afro-pessimism, for example. Mm-hmm. Can I tell you, this is the most depressing essay. And I read the essay. Joseph Epstein is my favorite writer. Perhaps one of the reasons I haven't read Toni Morrison is because Joseph Epstein has not written seriously about her. Uh, I, I, I cannot get Afro-pessimism out of my head. Did you intend that? Uh, well, it's a, it's a, it's an essay that was, um, I mean, initially sort of commissioned as a review. And I should say again, for folks who are listening, and you can't presume that, um, you're necessarily even familiar with the term. Um, and it would, it, I think we owe it to folks to sort of explicate things out a little bit, but, um, be a great radio host. You're exactly right. Yeah, this uh, I, I had been uh, familiar with um, the work of uh, Frank Wilderson, who's a philosopher, a theorist, uh, writer, uh, and, and in certain phases of his life, in, in many respects, a kind of very committed and very dedicated, um, uh, I would say more than just an activist, but really in many ways a kind of revolutionary um, who uh, and there was some buzz for quite a while, especially in the circles that I'm in, that, that he was going to be publishing a book entitled "On Afro Pessimism," which refers to a kind of, uh, I would say, both a, 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 a set of arguments, um, a, a, a strain of thought within um, the world of contemporary Black studies. Um, that he's closely associated with, and this was going to be a book, which from the title of it sounded like it was going to be uh, kind of his sort of laying down the his kind of philosophical case for uh, for this set of views and this set of arguments, um, and uh, and there were you know there were folks who were interested in me uh, reviewing the book, and so the piece begins its life out of that. Uh, the idea was I would read this book and review it, and I read the book, and was uh, very, I think both, both in a way disappointed and kind of frustrated with it because it, it was not quite, it was not quite what I had expected it would be. It was much more um, autobiographical in many ways than than I had expected or anticipated. Um, but it also, I also recognized that uh, he was. Um, Thinking through uh, some problems and um, and touching a nerve, right? Then there's a reason, and, and, and that his the fact that Afro pessimism had kept gaining traction in more and more circles and moving out of the kind of abstruse world of theory within the academy and starting to circulate more and more widely in, in activist circles, even occasionally in, in in the more sort of popular press, made me think, you know. It, it, this is a time not to uh, 
um, you know, kind of duck and pretend you don't, you know, feel invested about this, but to kind of come out and and say, okay, this is, you know, uh, this is a term that's circulating. There are things that are going on here. What do I make of this? Um, and and how can we pay attention to it um, seriously, but also critically, um, which is sort of the angle at which. Uh, I come at it, and uh, you know, maybe to to try and be short, but I, I guess I would mostly recommend folks, you know, read read they the have to read it. Get, they get they the actually have to read it with Google because yeah. they're not going to. I did. They're not going to know yeah. who Adolf Reed Jr. is. I will say yeah. this to the people who are listening: uh, sure. you are very critical of him in this essay, uh, but you you very briefly reveal a touch of deep cynicism when you say about Adolf Reed Jr., Reed has been right before, most famously about President Obama, with whom he crossed path in Chicago in the mid-1990s when he diagnosed him as a, quote, smooth Harvard lawyer with impeccable do-good credentials and vacuous to repressive neoliberal politics, close quote. The ease and celerity, you write, with which multinational corporations and political elites rushed to eulogize George Floyd instantly adopting the performative repertoire of genuflection and the mimeograph consultancy lingo of McKinsey at all. That's beautiful, by the way. To the issuing of carefully worded statements should give us pause. It is possible for nominally leftist rhetoric, especially one that is explicitly ethno-nationalist and directed by actors professionally linked to the governing class to weaponize superficial and symbolic gains in a way that serves to advance that, uh, their own professional and middle-class interests. Can I get a complete round of applause from my audience? Because that's what I think uh, about what happened in corporate America at Coke and at Delta and after the Georgia laws passed. That's what I think a lot of people did after George Floyd was murdered. Are you... Are you that deeply cynical about American politics, Professor? No, I'm just I'm I'm bringing a class critique to it um, and endorsing Adolf Reed's class critique of um, certain ways in which portions of the black bourgeoisie and uh, and, and others, frankly, um, have historically taken an interest in extracting certain kinds of gains that were down to them specifically under the guise of either racial leadership or uh, or some other form of kind of political interventionist um, project. But what your audience should also know and understand is that even within this, this same essay, one of the things that I'm trying to grapple with and understand is why it is that Frank Wilderson's Afro-pessimism should be enjoying the kind of um, interest um, that it is. And I think that one of the reasons that it has garnered the interest that it has is that I think he's um, absolutely touching on something quite important when he... Uh, uh, addresses the ways in which there's a form of anti-blackness that is specifically constructed around racial blackness, as opposed to, and sometimes exclusive even, of other racial and ethnic identities and formations. 
and specific forms of historical violence and discrimination and also a, a seeming impossibility to um, to acknowledge and provide care and accord basic, decent, civil equalities to persons who are black. I think the fact that this remains such a powerful and deeply uh, 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 suffused phenomenon in in not only this country but in the world that gives you know the 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 arguments and the strain of thought of afro pessimism a great deal of fuel and indeed if you want to refute some of the uh, deeper sort of theses that he's um, invested in uh, you'll have a hard time it doesn't mean that i think uh they're uh, uh completely uh, watertight, and I have some issues here and there. Um, but I would caution anyone, and, and I don't think it would be a fair reading of my essay to suggest that I think that, um, at, especially at the level of what motivates Wilderson and Afro-pessimism in terms of why these arguments are coming up in the first place, um, that this is coming from nowhere or coming from a place of pure sort of uh, bad faith and delusion. Um, that's not the issue. The issue then issue for me revolves around whether around revolves around how you come to think about and make decisions about how you understand how you diagnose the problem how you understand uh, uh, black agency in the world in the face of addressing these types of problems and so it, it ultimately comes down to disagreements about um, at the deepest level in some ways about political theory um, and and to a certain extent, a set of arguments that, uh, you know, black intellectuals have been having for decades and actually centuries now um, that have to do with, you know, intersections of political strategy, moral considerations, um, you know, philosophical and sometimes even theological conceptions, you know, history and so on and so forth, these kinds of things. So it's it's a complicated set of you know, kind of problems that I'm wading into. But yeah, there's no question that I have, uh, I, I think there's a class critique to be made of some of the ways in which certain portions, not all, but certain portions of uh, a kind of performative activism in the United States of America capitalizes um, and colludes with capital when it comes to uh, addressing racial equality and injustice. You know, Professor, it's bewildering to me because my experience of black America is primarily cultural, of course, through sports and music. You know, Jarvis Landry is one of my favorite Cleveland Browns ever, and I've been a lifelong fan from Jimmy Brown's year to the present. But I was tutored. My advisor was Alan Keyes. My friend and colleague for 10 years on a nightly television show, Kerman Maddox, maybe the most preeminent black consultant and broadcaster in Los Angeles where we covered in downtown South Central, the riots and their aftermath in the uprising of 1992, and through the black church, Cecil Murray, and other famous African-American Methodist Episcopal pastors with whom I am friends and who have dined in my home and whom I know. And, and from none of those perspectives, you know, the very atypical Alan Keyes to the very typical Kerman Maddox to the very typical 
black pastor to American culture experienced by a white of blacks, mostly through sports and music. I just haven't run into this. I just I I'm it's so bleak. It is absolutely the most bleak thing. And I I was drawn to your your sort of celebration of the of the return of Republican theory, small r Ciceronian diffusion and your statement that blacks have been attracted to this for the the reason that they believe in liberty. That that's the counterbalance. But I am bewildered by Afro pessimism and, by the way, by um, a couple of the other intellectuals, Monet. If I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, yeah, yeah th- there is Fred Hampton's death is not atypical for me to know about, but I don't know about the intellectual sort of framing that you give to it. It's just a great book for people like me. Uh, and by the way, I'm talking about Who Will Pay Reparations on My Soul by Jesse McCarthy. I'm curious how it is done and who has talked to you about it. Uh. Well, you know, the I think the um the book is uh you know, it's only recently out, it's still kind of circulating and sometimes you know, I think uh a a, book, a good book hopefully gets a lot of sort of word of mouth. Um I've always sort of believed in that, you know, as you mentioned earlier, you know, I work in a bookstore. So I believe in the recommendation, uh, you know, and I uh, think that people, especially book people, trust other book people. And um so I've always had a you know, a, a fairly strong belief that if you put, um, you know, good work out into the world and uh, people respond to it, um, they'll be excited about it and they'll, you know, uh, you know, pass it on down the grapevine. And, you know, before you know it, uh, you know, a book can, can really, you know, take on a life of its own in that way. And, you know, like I said, I, I hope that, um, you know, this is not a book that has one overarching kind of, um, thesis or, 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 you know, one, one key big idea, one big takeaway. Uh, it's a book that is meant to um, kind of bring a lot of things together in the same space around a couple of, uh, you know, around a couple of big ideas and a couple of big themes and primarily to kind of try and give us, try and make sense of how to think about some of these questions through the lens of, I would say, uh, this, the, the, the kind of the, the moment we've been living in over the last, say, you know, five to ten years, roughly. I, I, and, I, by the way, I want people yeah. to know that, that uh, if they get who will pay reparations on my soul, it's not it's it's a symphony of different points of view. It's a bullet train mm-hmm. through uh, black America and through academia. And by the way. If if you're not ashamed of being ignorant of things, it's very useful. I want to I want to make sure we talk about black dot nihilismus, uh, nihilismus mm-hmm. because again I'm going to admit ignorance here. I have seen the three Caravaggios that you discuss in this, and this is a way of illustrating for people that there is both familiar and new in this. They, anyone who knows anything about art will know about the Caravaggios of Saint Matthew. I have been lucky enough to see them in person. They are extraordinary. And you describe them well. I have never heard of Jean-Michael Basquiat because I never got into Fine Arts 10, though I tried four years in a row uh, Mm -hmm. to get into Fine Arts 10. And then the door closes. You Mm -hmm. have introduced me to this and you introduced me to his St. Matthews, which I've studied. This Mm -hmm. is a remarkable painting and Mm -hmm. a way to let people know 
what your book is about is that if they don't know this St. Matthew, they ought to go. I mean, it's an extraordinary painting. Do you want to describe it to people? Uh, it'd be hard for me to, 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 to describe it kind of on the, on the fly. But what, I, what, I, what I'll say, though, is this. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm trying to do our best for good radio moments. But I, I, think, that, I think that one of the things um, that, you know, I'm very invested in, and, I, and I, by the way, I appreciated that at the beginning of, um, of this segment, uh, y'all went into the into the into the into the digging in the crates. You went in the archives there and, and pulled out um, Gil Scott Heron's um, song slash poem, "Who Will Pay Reparations on My Soul," which is where I get the title from, um, and it's an epigraph also to the to this essay collection. Um, it, I'm very interested in what art with capital A can do, and that includes painting, right? For me, it includes music, it includes performance and dance, it includes, obviously, literature, poetry. Um, I believe that, uh, that art right, has a, a central and an essential function in human life, right? and that it's not just about having nice or pretty things or decorative things for, to go, you know, sort of just look at in the museum once in a while and once in a blue moon when you have the time. But it's not just about having, you know, rich people get to have expensive things in their homes to impress people when they come over, right? It, it's not just about making a bare wall look a little bit more lively or to add a little ambiance, right? Art is not just, just, not just a decorative enterprise, um, but a deeply... Uh, um, ethical and spiritual and communal, um, and I would I would argue even though it's slightly out of fashion, a civilizational yes. it has a civilizational function, and so uh, to me, thinking through art and thinking about art and what art has to tell us about who we are, about what's going on in our world at any given moment, um, is really crucial. It's a really crucial tool for us to think with. Um, and I think that, um, for me, one of the things that I, I would like for the book to do is to give people um, both a sense of the extraordinary um, vitality and diversity of black art, but also to give people a really uh, a sense of the kind of varieties, uh, the variety and um, sort of expansive ways in which you can write about black art, right? And, and think critically about black art and with black art and put it into use for helping you to think about certain kinds of things or you know, there's a, see something you, new or see something differently. And there's so a the, moment the in that essay, Professor. In that. Yeah, there's, a, there's a moment in that essay. You're at yeah. the exhibition. There is an Anglo couple standing next to you dismissing the art. And it, it, mm. that is a second generation uh, impact of art. Because not only the art that you're talking about, you're talking about the people watching the art, then you're overhearing right. them and their dismissiveness. I wonder how many conversations like that you've heard that you can write about. And I don't mean just about in museums. Sure. I mean everywhere. Yeah, well, I think, no, that's very much true. Uh, I should say it's actually a French couple, so we'll, oh. 
well, let, let's not get the, the French have to, you know, they don't get away with, with everything. Um, but, you know, I think, I think one of the, one of the, one of the points though, and, and you're kind of alluding to it here, right, is that um, part of art is also the conversation about it, right? Both in the ignorant sense, perhaps, um, which is not unimportant or uninteresting. You can learn a lot from, um, um, from a kind of unsophisticated, if I can put it that way, sure. response yep. to a work of art. It's not to be dismissed. There's a lot that's going on there that's worth thinking about. doesn't mean that you have to agree or disagree with it, but just to be open to it and think about what you can learn from that. But in a sense, there's also always, I think, a larger conversation about, about art, some of which is happening in the quote-unquote official places that we look for such things, in, you know, the, you know, um, magazines where people write art, publish art reviews and this kind of thing, right? And I'm interested in that, and I, you know, I know that world to a certain extent, and I pull from that. But I'm also interested in the ways in which the thinking about art and criticism of art and all these other things happens in um, uh, places where people um, do not have uh, fancy college degrees and are not publishing in, uh, you know, um, glossy or, you know, uh, 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 erudite uh, uh, magazines with a lot of terminology, right, but are just discussing, you know, music on the corner or thinking about, uh, you know, the last or the latest music video they saw and and you know what they liked or didn't like about it you know i think in fact there's a there's a larger world of thinking about the art that's always happening all around us all the time that's 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 worth also integrating into our picture of what's going on right of, of under we want to genuinely understand the times that we're living in and we want to genuinely understand each other and other people then we need to incorporate that kind of awareness and interaction with art into our, into our thinking. And, you know, so I hope to a certain extent essays are also, you know, reaching in that direction. It works. It works again. Now, I, I have to get to two things before, you know, in a podcaster world. We're out of the radio world now and purely in the <laughs> podcast world. There you have to be over in an hour or people will not begin it. And so I, I want to conclude within 14 minutes, but I have to cover two subjects with you. The first is there's lowbrow, middlebrow, and high culture in America. I am a middlebrow sure. culture guy. You are a highbrow culture guy. Um, sure. However, in my middlebrow culture, there's an event coming up. It's the Wonder Years. Uh, this was a big, phenomenally successful and culturally significant television series because for the boomers like me, I'm a young boomer, uh, it captured 1968 perfectly because it's about a 12 year old in 1968. And I was 12 in 1968. It's Vietnam. It's the hippies. It's everything. Mm -hmm. It's the yeah. civil rights movement. They're yeah. remaking it. It's being remade and it's being set in Birmingham, Alabama. And it's about a black middle class family. I can't wait mm -hmm. to see it. What do you think about that project? Is it even possible? Well, Listen, I'll, I'll say I'll say this. Uh, of course, it's possible. It's possible um, if you are. I mean, anything is possible if you're bringing the right sort of. Um, uh, it's a crude, uh, you know, term that I'm not actually that fond of. But 
but if you bring the right human capital to it, right? So obviously, I think that this remake project will be can only be as good as the people they find to to back it. That is, you know, the, the actors, but also obviously the writers, the producers, the director, everyone who's going to kind of make it what it's going to be. So there's that. Um, whether or not, uh, you know, and then the question of whether or not, you know, it's good, whether or not it's successful is going to be, you know, interesting to, to judge and evaluate. We'll see how different folks will sort of respond to it. Um, but one of the things that I tend to have a bit of skepticism about with um, television and, and many forms of, of, of cultural production that have a a high level of sort of capital input that has to go into them, uh, which means that they're bound up in certain kinds of interests, right, is that uh, sometimes, you know, that kind of, that kind of cultural product, again, for the, because of the pressures to deliver in terms of getting, right, like if you make that, they, they need to get a certain amount of eyeballs on it. You're trying to get audience, you're trying to get numbers, you're trying to generate revenue and so on and so forth. So you're trying to appeal to figure out, you know, what people want and then give it to them. When you're, do, when you're in that kind of mode and in that kind of logic, you often tend to produce story arcs um, uh, and, and other aspects of characterization and so on and so forth that go into, say, a show like that, that ultimately tend towards some kind of wish fulfillment that's an interpretation of, yes. and, of the wish fulfillment uh, of a particular, you know, demographic. And there's, of course, going to be questions of how well you even understand what, the, what that demographic actually wishes for. But even at the most basic level, uh, the best art, I think, is not really about attempting to um, make, give people sort of what they want or what they believe that they want ahead of time. But actually, oftentimes, it involves giving them something they may not want and may not be quite ready for, right? Um, something that's a little bit comes from a slightly different angle and that challenges uh, many of their expectations. I don't know if you ever watched The Wire. Oh, sure. I loved it. The guy who, who wrote it hates me, but I love okay. the. I, I love the. I mean, you know, he actually really hates me, the guy who wrote it right. and created it. But I love this. But series. you know, you may have heard that uh, 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 the actor uh, uh, died last uh, week. Yep. Yeah, Mike. Yeah. So Michael K. died last week. It's still really hurting because he was very young, uh, and he was an extraordinary, extraordinary actor. Omar um, is an amazing had, character who had so much yeah. more to offer and, and, and so much potential. But I think one to me that's a kind of great example, right, of somebody who I think brought to the screen something that was actually not necessarily what audiences. Um, pre-understood themselves to want or to be looking for or expecting, but the challenge, but the challenge of uh, uh, the challenge to expectations actually produced something far more um, valuable and in certain ways sort of intangible. And, and, and the occasion for that kind of a thing, um, again, you know, it's like I said at the top of this, it really depends on, the quality of the people that are involved, you know. You know, I, I can't and remember you it. You paired extraordinary actor that you got an extraordinary performance and an opportunity to produce, you know, something that was artistically really profound. But not all television is going to get that lucky. You know, you, you paired The Wire 
It wasn't lucky. It's a brilliant piece of uh, that. I, I know you didn't mean to say that, but the, the wire is paired in your essays with another television series as representing the sort of uh, Omega and Alpha of television. What was it? I can't find it in my notes. Um, it was the West Wing. That's it. The West Wing, uh, the, the, the neoliberal happy talk. And the yeah. abs- that was a great essay, by the way. But but we only have so much time. I can't get into it. I, I do want to. I think the Wonder Years 2.0 is wish fulfillment of Hollywood's liberal elite that you will not be happy with and I won't be happy with. But we'll see. We'll see. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. I, I want to close with this part of my mm-hmm. I mentioned to you that I heard about your essay from a pulpit mm-hmm. from my pastor. Mm-hmm. And part of my experience with with black America is through my friendship with pastor Mark Whitlock, who, who runs the largest AME church in America and started one in Orange County, California, when I lived there and has been a guest in my home. And I've, I've spoken at his church. I've taught at his church. I've heard him preach. Mm-hmm. I don't see a lot of the black church in this. And I'm wondering what your theology is, if any, or is it neo-Marxist beginning and end? <laughs> Uh, I don't think I'm that easily pinned down as just neo-Marxist, um, but nor 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 am I going to pretend that I'm a you know a, a practicing and uh, 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 pious um, man of faith. Uh, I think I fall in a you know a long tradition, roughly of free thinking, um, and I'm open always to. Um, to religion and spirituality, I have an enormous, very deep respect um, for religion, um, and indeed for all religions, um, and and for the religious, you know, as a as a as a core aspect of um, of human life. Um, there's a tendency, and sometimes these days, especially, it feels a little bit like a smear. Uh, to attempt to, I think, discredit folks by invoking any form of leftism or Marx as though that were uh, uh, somehow a, uh, a, a, you know, an unallowable uh, uh, point of reference. Uh, what I'll say is, is that uh, I have, in, you know, anyone who knows me, anyone who reads me at length knows that I have um, many and important and severe Critiques uh, often of of the of the left, quote unquote, though that means very different things in very different places. Um, of Marxism, uh, you, you you can go down the line. Uh, there is a popular myth that circulates, notably in in right wing media, that at places like Harvard, all we do is indoctrinate our students. And uh, yeah. I can tell you that I'm I'm sorry to, to disappoint, but I do not indoctrinate anyone. I do not uh, preach Marxism in my classroom. Um, you, you can ask any of my students, and I invite folks to, you know, attempt gotcha interviews all you want. The, the fact of the matter is, and nor do I know any of my colleagues to do this. Uh, it, it's to my knowledge, I've never heard, never uh, known anyone. I, I think people who think this way about teaching seem to not understand what teaching is. Uh, we don't actually live in North Korea. Uh, so it's not actually possible to simply force people to, you know, regurgitate, you know, our our favorite, you know, lines from Lenin or whatever it is folks imagine that we're doing. But what I will say, really to come back to the question which you were asking about about religion and the church, is, you know, I, I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dispute your account, but I'll point out that uh, 
you know, <laughs> the word souls is actually in the title of my book. And so I do think that the question that I'm, that I'm asking and pointing to, I think folks who are of an open mind um, can, can easily um, see the ways in which they can connect and interpret um, the questions that I'm interested in um, to points within their own doctrine or interpretation. And, I, and, and to me, that's all to the good. That's to say, rather than um, having my work understood through some form of, uh, through some sort of sectarian lens, I'm much more interested in putting work out into the world that people then, from whatever framework they're coming from, from whatever religious background they're coming from, from whatever denomination they're coming from, can make, can, can make useful to themselves in their own terms. So that, to me, is sort of how I think about that. And that, uh, that works, Professor, because when I mention neo-Marxists, it's because of your references to Piketty and others throughout the book. And sure. I thought to myself, all right, he has a worldview that is not explicitly Christian, but which has obviously spiritual elements, which might be informed by Piketty and Fanon. And as a result, I will understand him in that regard. But I want to ask him the question so I make sure I don't make the mistake, even as he's having influence on Anglo Anglo churches. But about the indoctrination, it's really not about a professor or a classroom. I've taught for 25 years. I've taught constitutional law at a good, solid college and a good, solid law school on the West Coast, Chapman Law School, for 25 years. It is impossible to indoctrinate a student. But an environment does indoctrinate. And the Harvard environment is the Harvard environment. I have not been a part of it since 1978. Wooderson and I are both the same age. He went to Dartmouth when I was in Cambridge. I am curious, what who takes your class? You only let a dozen people into your seminar on James and Baldwin. It's got to be, it should be a freshman seminar if you want a suggestion. You didn't ask for one, but I would make it a freshman seminar. You might change the trajectory of a great number of students' lives if you let the freshmen in. But who takes Mm -hmm. it? And what are they looking for? And what do you want them to do afterwards? Do you want them to go be a caterer in San Francisco, work in a bookstore and figure it out, as you you seem to imply in the Gazette interview? Or do you want them... I know. What do you want out of your students at the end of the the semester? Well, I think that's pretty simple. Uh, I mean, I I don't have a a specific mission orientation for them. Um, What I... Uh, what I hope for them is that um, on the far end of the course that they've taken with me, there are a couple of things that should have happened. Um, one, they should come out of, on the far end, um, better readers. Uh, by a better reader, I mean somebody who not only has read more, which is step one, but also somebody who has an ability to um, pay attention to language and the way it's being used and to think intelligently about uh, the ways in which that usage um, has certain kinds of implications um, for our understanding of how language itself works, for example, uh, principles of literary style, um, histories, um, and the ways in which language is always responding to other language, right? Um, these kinds of things. I also hope for all of my students that they come out of my courses on the far end being better writers. Uh, this is it's very a very tricky art, I would say, uh, the art of teaching to write. 
uh, writing is an extraordinarily difficult um, enterprise. And it's not easy to teach, uh, but I do en- enjoy teaching writing and I enjoy watching students become better writers. And I think that becoming a better writer, whether you go on to uh, a career that has little to nothing to do with writing or whether you go on to a career in publishing or I don't know what, uh, right across the entire spectrum of whatever you're going to do in life, being able to express yourself clearly, lucidly, with economy, with, with, with passion, with force in writing, um, can make a tremendous difference in your life at personal levels, at professional levels, all the way through. At the end of the day, Hugh, uh, uh, I want my students to go out into the world equipped better equipped to do whatever it is they decide they want to do. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, I, I, would, I would wish for them not to go into consulting. <laughs> this um, McKenzie far, thing. <laughs> far, far too many of them do. And to the extent that I can put a dent in that, um, you know, I'm happy to do that um, because I think that the uh, our, I don't think that Anyone, uh, and, and not our not our country, not the world, uh, not society with a capital S. I don't think anyone is best served by having great promise and intelligence in our young people um, be put into that line of work. So, I don't not have any politics, but but that's sort of what I would hope for. I so salute you for that. By the way, we share in a teacher's ambition just to make my students better readers and mindful of of how much reading will make their lives happier if they'll just read. Uh, And, you know, I'm a columnist for the Washington Post, so I have to care about writing, and I really do believe it's it's gone. So I want to ask a quick question. We're over the time limit now, Professor, so officially people won't listen to us, but screw them. Um, What do you make them write? Do you make them write 750-word Essays, or do you make them write term papers, the former being what works in the world mostly and the latter being what matters in the world? Uh, well, uh, you know, term papers still have a certain um, sort of work workhorse-like efficiency within higher education. I know that it's frustrating and disappointing to people, but to a certain extent, uh, I think that the traditional ways of doing that uh, continue to be, they continue to have the flaws that they've always had, but they also are not um, completely unsuitable or unfair to students. What I will say, though, is that, um, you know, I am interested in working with students on drafts, right? But I think think, uh, the big piece for students tends to be not understanding that writing involves this extremely painstaking work and that it's not, uh, you know, you sit down and you're brilliant and, you know, you just, it just comes out, right? Like, I don't, there's not a single one of the essays in my collection that didn't go through anything less than probably a dozen, in some cases, more than, say, 20 drafts, right? Um, there, uh, one of the essays, it's one of the more formally experimental notes on trap. It took me two years to write that essay. And I often mention that when students ask me about it because it's one of the essays they like and I I want to disabuse them of the notion that the way that you produce work like this or the where this comes from is oh he's just smart 
he knows a lot. So he sits down and, it, you know, it just flows. You know, these you know, brilliant sentences come out. It's like, no, the way that these got to be they were was through a lot of painstaking, you know, uh, uh, writing, then deleting, then rewriting, writing an entire paragraphs, and then cutting huge, you know, strips of it out, keeping only one line from that trying to rebuild from that, you know, until you get it right, until you get it right. And it's also, it's, it also involves, right, this ethic, right, this work ethic, but also this aesthetic ethic, right, because you're, it's about being committed to um, wanting something to not just serve a u- utilitarian purpose, um, but some higher sense that there's a right way to get this, or in a best way, to get this thought across and you're going to keep working at it and keep kind of chiseling until you get to that. Um, and I try to impart that ethic um, to my students. Good for you. It, it requires an essential dual commitment to waste and economy. And I agree. And, and, and that's why writing is hard. You know, trap, your essay on trap is the one that I needed Google for the most. And this morning I, I talked to my young, young engineer and my mm-hmm. uh, not so young engineer, both of whom are, are music savants, mm-hmm. both of whom know about trap, but only they're both Anglo, uh, mm-hmm. only tangentially. Well, one is, is, is uh, a variety of things. Uh, I just do not know if trap is is accessible to me. I just, I, I tried. I just don't know if it's possible for me to understand trap, but we will yeah. do that a future time. Fugitivities yeah. is next on my, on my reading list, professor. I hope that you will come back when I've read that. And then we can talk about fugitivities, but I want well, people I, to go out and get, uh, yeah. uh, who will pay reparations on my soul. Cause it's really terrific. Well, I, I, I would love to do that, um, Hugh, but you have to make me a promise. I will. Louder. Which is, all right, next time we, we talk, that you will have read a novel by Toni Morris. Oh, I, that's also on the list, because I'm not going to okay. be ignorant forever. Ignorant is not stupid. Ignorant is simply uneducated, and no, you're I, running out of time. And I will. Right. I hear you. <laughs> but Toni, to, Toni Morrison deserves your time. I'm going to do that. And my friend, I thank you for your work and for that recommendation. I'll do that. I'll read them both by the time. I, which one do you recommend, by the way? Where should I start? Good question. Uh, I, you know, my favorite of hers uh, was always Sula. Um, but if you're only going to read one Toni Morrison novel, it should probably be Beloved, which is widely considered to be her masterpiece and for good reason. All right. I wrote them both down, and I'll have both of them before we do Fugitivities. Professor, thank you. Good luck in the semester ahead. All right. I appreciate it, Hugh. You have be a good well. morning. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. Andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did, and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.